The gospel lesson comes to us from the good news according to St. John, the second chapter. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the gospel of our Lord. So if you ever invite the Galt family, the six of us, you know, these four basically teenage kids almost, uh, if you invite the six of us over for dinner, you need to make sure to buy enough food for about a dozen longshoremen after a 14-hour workday in the cold with no food. I affectionately call my children a plague of locusts. Um, they will get through a lot of food. Uh, I grew up with, uh, as one of four brothers, and so I know what it means to, like, you see the table spread, and you're making sure you're going to get yours, you know? There's a limited amount on the table, and you want to make sure you get your elbows out and get ready and you get enough of a portion. Uh, psychologists and economists and sociologists have called this, perhaps you've heard this, um, it's not that rare of a phrase, but it's called operating and living life with a scarcity mindset. That you assume that resources are scarce. This is kind of a default way of being human, it seems. The philosophy that life is a competition for a fixed amount of resources. And so whatever resource we're talking about, it's finite, it's limited. And what that means is that anyone else around me is competition, right? I got to get my piece of the pie. We can't work together and make more pies. No, there's one pie and I got to fight for my piece of it. A recent book titled Scarcity broadens the concept of scarcity by asking the following questions. What happens to our minds when we feel that we have too little? How does the context of scarcity shape our choices and our behaviors? And the book shows that scarcity is not just a physical limitation. It affects our thinking. It affects our feeling. It orients the mind automatically and powerfully toward our unfulfilled needs. So we're focusing on what's unfulfilled. For example, food grabs the focus of those who are hungry. For a lonely person, scarcity may come in a poverty of social isolation and lack of companionship. It ultimately leads, and this is a quote from someone who was quite aware of their scarcity mindset, I was always thinking, I am not doing enough. 
I am not enough. I don't deserve to spend money on myself right now because I have to save for emergencies later. I need to be really picky about how I spend my time so I don't burn out. In simple terms, a scarcity mindset leaves you feeling like you never have enough. It can manifest as anxiety that you are either not enough or you do not have enough to be treating yourself or to be sharing with other people. And it's strange because of all the epidemics and pandemics we've been talking about. I mean, there's obviously this pandemic of scarcity mindset in our country, in a lot of the West, perhaps the whole world. You could argue that per capita, America is the richest society in the history of the world. And yet, don't we hear more about what we don't have and what isn't there than we do about gratitude or contentment. And maybe that's because we're focused more on stuff, you know, money, career, my own accomplishments. We don't tend to think about things outside of scarcity, things that we would like, resources in terms of relationships or stability or health or social cohesion. We're usually just thinking of ourselves to try to get certain resources and everyone else on my block, in my city, in my country is competition. See, scarcity shows up in thinking there's not enough stuff and that others are here to compete with us. It also shows up, strangely enough, for a moment in our text this morning. And I think in our text, we see the antidote to a scarcity mindset. So raise your hand if you've been to a first century Jewish wedding lately. Anyone? Here's what it was. Pretty amazing. Jewish wedding feasts lasted a whole week in the ancient Near East. Six hours? No, please. They needed a whole week to exuberantly celebrate life and goodness and blessing. So there's lots of family and guests would come from all over into town, and many of them would be crashing at your place for the week, right? Because you need all these houses for all these people. There'd be lots of singing and dancing and perhaps arguing and shouting and crying but most especially, there was a lot of drinking. So here we see in verse 3, we're introduced to the problem in this story, the challenge that creates the tension. It's not a very dramatic problem on one level. It's kind of mundane. See, the party for this newly married bride and groom is going strong. The guests are having a great time. Some of them, of course, have traveled a great distance to get there. And someone goes into the wine cellar and realizes that the flask of wine he's holding is the last one there. Excuse me. There's no more wine to be had, and that means this party is about to go downhill fast. It's certainly a social faux pas. Someone's going to look bad. And the joy that is booing these people along, the joy that fills the heart and hearts of the bride and groom and their parents and family is at risk of dying out. So this unexpected lack of wine is a problem for this family, no doubt. But it's not a problem that seems obviously... Uh, a candidate for immediate divine intervention, right? <coughs> Sorry. No one at the party's dying, no one's sick, no one needs a demon cast out of them. They've just run out of wine. They got to the end of their resources, right? So Mary goes to Jesus, she looks him right in the eyes, and she says, they have no wine. Jesus, somewhat understandably, given the relative disparity between who he is and the scale of the crisis, tells his mother, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And at first, this reply seems to be evidence of his indifference. 
In fact, his response seems to fit with the frequent picture that we have of God in our society. One that maybe you still have in your head or still struggle with in some sense. That an all-powerful God must have far larger concerns than the details of my trivial and insignificant life. But see, the wedding shows that scarcity is real sometimes. Part of the reason we have a scarcity mindset is that sometimes resources do run out. Whether in our own lives in small ways or in the culture or in the world. And so what do we do when we run up against the end of resources or the apparent end of resources? When we're afraid, when there is scarcity, and I think Mary teaches us here, she goes to Jesus and he says, why do you want me to get involved? It's not my time yet. This isn't my coming out party. It's their wedding, right? His mother just looks at him and then she looks to the service and she says, do whatever he tells you to do. You know, she just kind of Pushes him into it. This application here of she believes, she goes, she knows where the true resource of resources is, and she believes that he can do it, and she's tenacious with him. She leans into his apparent, like, I'm not sure. Where's this coming from? Why should I do it? And I would just say in context, note that her tenacity is based on what she knows Jesus is able to do. It's based on serving others. It was relational. It was communal. It was in the context of love. Don't forget about that. It's literally a wedding. It's not just Mary wanting nicer clothes or a new car or career success. Later in the New Testament, it says you ask for the wrong things because you ask to spend on your passions. But ask for the things that are good for you and for the world and The answer is always yes and amen. And so here she is. She comes. She says, don't give me that, Jesus. Hey, follow him. Do what he says to do. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but even psychologists tell us that scarcity in one way can be helpful. Limitations can actually focus us toward the best things, almost like a funnel, you know? Like we're here, we're all over the place, like water, and then you get sort of focused and shot out in the right direction to something better and best. I see that that's what happened here with Mary. They're all at a party, they're all doing stuff, and by the end of the party, even though Jesus hasn't, you know, uh, not everyone knows what he did, someone else gets to take the credit for it, which is beautiful. He shares his glory, and yet his followers believed in him. The, The servants believed in him. His mother believes in him. This focus from just a party gets drawn to Jesus. And so even just generally, psychologists tell us this, scarcity or limitations can actually contribute to an interesting and a meaningful life. Just think about this. Flip the script for a second. This is how you find gratitude even when you encounter scarcity. In the words of Professor Todd May, when there is always time for everything, there is no urgency for anything. A life without limits would lose the beauty of its moments, and it would become boring. For example, he says, resolution of midlife crises consists in accepting your mortality. In this way, midlife often heightens the feeling that there is not enough time left to waste. We overcome the illusion that we can be anything, do anything, experience everything, and so we restructure our lives around the needs that are essential. This means that we accept that there will be many things we don't do in our lives. Again, this is just general human psychology, but I think it's helpful. When you encounter scarcity, to think, how is it limiting you to the things, to the essence, to the best, to the good? And it's what Mary did here and showed others to do. 
They turn their focus to Jesus. Jesus says something similar in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He says, I want to tell you something. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you're going to eat tomorrow or drink. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to put on to wear. Isn't life so much more than food? And isn't your body so much more than clothing? Look at the birds. They neither sow nor reap or gather in barns, and yet your father feeds them. Aren't you of so much more value than them? Therefore, don't be anxious. Don't say, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? The Gentiles, the nations, is the word there, seek after all these things. So the whole world seeks after those things. They're really worried. They have a scarcity mindset. They're worried about what they're going to eat and drink and their clothes. He says, but your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. So seek first what? Focus. Let the scarcity, when you worry, focus you on God's kingdom. And his righteousness, that is his making all things right in the world, his faithfulness in love. And if you seek those things first, if you let that focus you, when you see scarcity, to focus you on God's kingdom and his righteousness, guess what? All that other stuff, the food, the drink, the resources you're worried about, that will be added to you too. So don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to worry about itself, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do here is to move from a scarcity mindset to what, again, psychologists and others have called, and economists have called, an abundance mindset. Here we might call it faith, but abundance is fine too. See, the abundance mindset refers to the paradigm that there is plenty for everyone. A Forbes article says that while scarcity focuses on what we don't have, abundance thinking is an attitude and mindset that focuses on what we do have. It allows us to see possibility rather than limits, and it can shift our perspective. Again, we might just see one piece of pizza and think, well, there's six of us here, and who's going to get the second piece because there's only eight pieces? Or we could get together and make new pizzas, right? You just start to see that there's an abundance there if you just... Have faith if you just change your perspective, which is what the word repentance means, to just metanoia, to change your mind, to think about things in a new way in light of God's kingdom and especially his abundance. That there are more resources than you will ever see. I won't read all of this again because I want to say a few things about it, but I'll just give you some highlights. There's six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, this is, these are big jars. They're, you know, huge things, and you take them, and uh, this is how you would purify yourself. So it's all about, like, law and being clean and worship. And Jesus fills those, has them filled with water, fills them to the brim. They're turned into wine. They take it to the master of the feast, and he says to them, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, and then pour wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. And then John tells us that this was the first of Jesus' signs, the first sign he ever did, which means it wasn't just a nice gift for them. It was that. It was also a gift meant to point to something beyond itself, to point to Jesus as the author of abundance, the one who has all resources, the one who can literally turn water into wine. His first public miracle is at a wedding party. There's an emptiness, and Jesus fills it. He sees emptiness, and he fills it with his extravagance. That's what happens when your focus in your scarcity points to Jesus. You see that he is the abundant one, and he fills all of our emptiness with his extravagant love and provision. 
You don't actually have to raise your hand, but if you want to, raise your hand if you don't know what to do with all your endless amounts of free time. You're just sitting around bored to tears, right? Or raise your hand if the first thing out of your mouth is like, I make way too much money. I'll never have, an, I have way too much. I don't know what to do with it. Or raise your hand if you look in the mirror or you look at your de- calendar and your day planner and all your to-do lists and your resolutions for the year and you have everything you want. You are everything you want. You're content with the way things are. No, mostly we see our lack rather than our abundance, right? But here the call is to come to Jesus in those things and to let him fill your emptiness with his extravagant love, to hear and believe that he is the one who is not stingy. He hasn't created a universe full of limited resources and finite resources that never regenerate, that never grow, and that we're going to take all of them out and it's all going to be over with. If we believe that he is wealthy with joy and goodness and gifts, the cattle's on a thousand hills, as the Old Testament put it, then we begin to see the abundance in all things. And we begin to become joyful people, like those at this wedding, generous people, grateful people. When we see the lack in the world, we expect Jesus to come and fill it with some new resource to trust him. And then we see the signs of his love and his power. I'm going to take only two more minutes because I see I'm at the 14-minute mark and I'm trying to preach shorter while it's cold, okay? Let me just bring it home. He brings water into wine. He is one who gives generously, gives lavishly, who overwhelms with his generosity. And of all the things we see here, we see that whatever Jesus is, he is not stingy. This is 150 gallons of rich, well-aged wine. The equivalent of 900 bottles of choice wine for a bride and groom that could have gotten away with 20 bottles of the cheap stuff. It's extravagant. It's silly. And see, many of us have formed an image of a God who is frugal and careful, who doesn't waste his attention or his love on the unworthy, who keeps tracks of things, who sits up in heaven with a pencil and a ledger. We do a good thing, and maybe he'll do a good thing in return, tit for tat, this for that. Equitable, proportionate, even. Just the right amount of resources for the people who deserve it. And let me say this as clearly as I can. This is not remotely like the God revealed in the scriptures through Jesus. He shows up at a wedding party for a man and woman he barely knew. It seems like it was his mom's friend. And these are people you've never heard of and you never will hear of because they never did anything particularly remarkable. And he gives them a flood of the best wine they've ever tasted. And then he walks out into the night without asking a thing in return and letting them take the credit. The quality of this wine, because God is not frugal, we will never run out of resources if he is with us. And he is. He poured it out freely, recklessly, without regard for normal patterns of behavior. This is a God who is the giver of all good things, and most of all, the giver of himself. Lavishly, extravagantly, in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, this is a God who makes on his mountain for all the nations a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. He tells us to take all that he has and to use it up because he's holding nothing back. He will always refill. He will refill. He will turn water into wine in our lives. Think about the billions and billions of gallons of water in the world. Any elementary school kid can tell you that in all the oceans of the earth, there's a lot of water in the world. Most of the water, the world is water. And it's just waiting until the right moment to be spoken into wine. That's the kind of God that we served. We serve.
This is illustrated by one other story I came across this week in this podcast. Have any of you heard of Suzanne Simard? She is a Canadian scientist, a professor in the Department of Forest and Conservation at the University of British Columbia, the author of The Mother Tree. She's a forest ecologist. Anyone heard of her? Read this? She's got a TED Talk, and it's been pr pretty viral and some other stuff. She's a forest ecologist who has proven beyond doubt that trees communicate with each other. So think about this. For most of history, we've or recent history, modern science, we've assumed trees in forests operate with a scarcity mindset. And that is, the tall trees get the sunlight, and the other ones don't, and so the goal is to grow as tall as you can by yourself and get there first and suck up the sunlight, and if you don't, you're gonna stay small and puny, and eventually the big tree's gonna take up all the resources out of the earth. That's what we all thought. It's based on social Darwinism. It's just what we thought. We think individually. Guess what? Not at all true. She studied and she did all these crazy things by like putting, uh, what's the word for when something's nuclear? Just uh, contaminated sort of stuff and found that it like went through stuff. So she did all these stuff to, sh to check it out. But what happens is the big trees, she calls them mother trees, go up and they get all kinds of resources and they go really deep and wide. Then all the other trees through fun fungi or fungi, however you say that, and all sorts of mitochondria, all these things, they get connected and the energy is shared underneath the earth. I'm the fun guy at my house. She said fungi and I was like, I've, I've always heard, I've, she said fungi and I was like, I've always heard fun guy. Anyways, so there are these trees. They actually provide resources for all the other trees. They go up and they come down and everything's connected. They talk to each other. They send information to each other and they share resources. There's kind of like these pods. Someone called it like the wood wide web. There's these <laughs> nodes, right? And they've actually found it. So a forest is technically in one sense a single organism, which she calls wired for wisdom and for care for itself. The processes that make for a high-functioning forest mirror the maps of a human brain that we're just now drawing. She calls them mother trees. They parent, elder, in a mode of mutuality and reciprocity, modeling what we also know to be true of genuinely flourishing human ecosystems. And that's where I close. When you face scarcity, if you want to have an abundance mindset, to look around and just not see these other people in this room as your competition for limited resources for job or money or for whatever, but instead to hear and believe that we are connected, we are not alone, and our job is to abide in the vine that is Jesus, who brings the life to us, but to be connected to the other branches in and through him, and then we begin to believe that because he is enough, we have enough. Because we are together, we can relax and enjoy and benefit from one another's nutrients and resources as we're connected. We can experience together his extravagant love and share it with one another. And that you can hear and believe time and time again, when you come to take wine and bread and be together, that your world and your relationships are far more abundant than you will ever know because everything we have is from God's extravagant love for you, and you will never run out. May you hear and believe this today and all the days to come. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.